Welcome to the first season of Murder and 20 podcast, where I, Bobby Stevens, am your host with a new episode every Wednesday. If you're a serious fan of true crime and love listening to podcasts, but don't want all that small talk, you've come to the right place. We get right to the facts. Murder and 20 episodes are concise and complete in 20 minutes. Less talk and more true crime. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in. The young Parsons family was starting out in Newfoundland in the early 1970s. On the eastern coast of Canada, it borders the Labrador Sea and is the 16th largest island in the world. A half a million people call the island home, and about 100,000 of those live in St. John. Todd was born in September 1969. His younger brother Gregory was born two years later. Their parents, Jacob and Catherine, had a rocky relationship. She abused prescription drugs and alcohol and had psychiatric problems. During their marriage, she had overdosed on drugs and attempted suicide twice. Once by trying to hang herself, another by trying to jump out of a moving car. She was also violent towards Jacob and had stabbed him in the ribs with a knife. The couple separated when Greg was only six years old, and Catherine returned to using her maiden name, Carol. Court records revealed that initially, Jacob had custody of the boys. Then, in March 1981, they went to live with their mother, and he moved almost 5,000 miles away to Yellowknife in the Northwest Territories. Two years later, Catherine was at home with the boys and drunk. Child welfare stepped in and seized the boys. She was able to retrieve them under a one-year supervision order. However, Todd chose not to return to his mother's house and moved in with his grandfather for a time and eventually joined his father in Yellowknife. Jacob offered Greg a job and a place to live. But Greg felt a responsibility to his mother. He felt she had fought hard to keep her sons and was trying to stay sober and was being treated for her depression and anxiety. Numerous doctors had prescribed her medication, which led to other problems. Over a period of 12 months in 1990, she had been prescribed almost 8,000 pills. That works out to 643 pills Per day. Now this was before medical records were online and one doctor didn't know what another doctor had prescribed. Catherine developed other disorders and began hoarding food. Her freezer was full to the top. She had an obsessive need for cleanliness and order and kept her house exceptionally tidy and neat. If she saw one of her neighbors get something new, she wanted it too, and she knew how to work the system and would lie to get what she wanted. Greg was a good student and ambitious. He started his own carpet cleaning business when he was only 16. Greg began dating Tina Doyle, who was no relation to his friend Brian with the same last name. Tina's family treated him like a son, and he became very close to them. Greg and his childhood friend Brian got together with their friends 
for a short time and formed a punk rock band poking fun at trashy song lyrics and recorded a parody that mentioned stabbing your mother and father. They never played their song for anyone, and over time, it was forgotten about. Greg was left alone to deal with the brunt of Catherine's mood swings, compulsive behavior, and mental illness. As a teenager, he didn't hang out on the streets or get into trouble. Rather, his friends would come over and hang out in the basement. One of those was Brian, who lived just two doors down. Rather than knock on the front door and use the stairs, his friends crawled through the basement window and they'd drink the occasional beer. His mother didn't mind his friends coming over and said she was grateful to have him at home. But then, the next day, she'd complained to the neighbors about the noise they made. She also told people that she'd gotten Greg fired from his job, but he was self-employed. Greg just shrugged it off. He knew his mother was lonely and would say things to people to get their attention. Things like she befriended her neighbors, but then would turn on them accusing them of stealing her newspaper delivery money. One time, she invited a stranger to stay on their couch, but two weeks later called police, saying he was stealing from her, and filed a peace bond against him. She also filed a peace bond against her son Todd, and filed a discrimination complaint against an employee at a college. She told a neighbor that her phone was getting cut off because Greg ran up a long-distance bill she couldn't pay. Police investigated all her complaints, and they all turned out to be false. Through all the adversity, Greg grew into a responsible young man. He had compassion not only for his mother, but for others who were disabled or elderly. He helped them by mowing their lawns or shoveling snow and taking out their garbage. The neighborhood admired Greg. In March 1990, his mother had become too much for him to handle, and he moved in with some friends into an apartment. He kept in touch with her and would phone and stop by. Their relationship improved and he moved back home. But the good times didn't last long. She returned to her old ways and within a few weeks ordered him to move out. Then she called him demanding he remove all his belongings. Then called later to say she had put them on the front lawn. Greg arrived to find that indeed she had put his belongings on the lawn, all except one, his VCR. So he went into the house to retrieve it. His mother stood in his way and wouldn't let him into the living room. He held her arms and watched her backwards, making his way into the room. Catherine fell, hit the coffee table, and injured her back. Greg took her to the hospital and Catherine responded by filing a peace bond against him. In response, he wrote a letter to the court describing the childhood abuse he and his brother had endured. Catherine dropped the matter. Greg made plans to move in with Tina and her family in the new year. On the afternoon of New Year's Eve, Greg and Tina drove over to Catherine's. Tina waited in the car while Greg popped in for a 20-minute visit. 
They returned to Tina's home, and shortly after midnight, he called his mother to wish her a happy new year. Later, he returned to his apartment to attend to his dog and fell asleep. Sometime during the night, his friend Brian, who was intoxicated, broke into Catherine's home by crawling through the basement window. As he did, he pulled the curtain rod down. He removed his clothes and walked into her bedroom with a steak knife in his hand. He slashed and stabbed her 53 times. Details are scarce, but somehow she ended up on the bathroom floor, crumpled in a pool of blood. Ryan took a shower, then slipped out of the house. It was New Year's Day, and Greg slept until early afternoon. He joined Tina for supper at her aunt's house, then they drove over to his mother's house. Tina sat in the car while Greg walked up to the front door and rang the doorbell. When she didn't answer, he guessed that she was out visiting and they left. The next day, Greg called his mother several times and got no answer. At 10.30 p.m., he and Tina drove to her home again. He knocked on the door. Still no answer. So he popped out a front window. His mother's dog was barking and ran upstairs, so Greg followed. He noticed the bathroom door was closed and tried to turn the knob. It was locked. Greg was concerned for his mother and punched the lock hard. The lock popped, and he opened the door slightly. He peeked in and saw her body lying dead in a dry pool of blood. Catherine was 45. Greg ran outside to tell Tina, then called 911. Firefighters and ambulance arrived. Police noted that the house overall was very tidy and clean. Then, in the basement, noticed a latch had been broken off the window and was laying on the floor, and the curtain rod was hanging down. Police didn't find that odd and determined the window was too small for someone to climb through. Greg and Tina were briefly questioned and left the house just before midnight. Four hours later, they received a call from the police sergeant asking them to come to the police station. Tina was interviewed first for an hour, then they questioned Greg for three hours. Greg described his mother's compulsive behavior, hoarding, alcoholism, medications, suicide attempts, and psychiatric issues. He stated that he hadn't been in her house in the last couple weeks, and police asked him if he'd ever noticed the broken window in the basement. And he responded that there was a pane that was partly broken, but it had been covered with another piece of glass, and that the curtains covered the window. Police did not take Greg to view the window. If they had, he would have pointed out that there's no way his mother with her obsessive compulsive behavior would have allowed the curtain rod to dangle like that. And that window had often been used by his friends to come in and out of the basement. But police didn't ask Greg. Later that day, police obtained statements from Catherine's lawyer and psychiatrist. They both repeated statements that she had told them about Greg 
saying that she feared for her life. Court records would later reveal that a judge questioned why her psychiatrist would take her statements at face value when he'd make notes that she had a tendency to exaggerate and dramatize her problems and that she was manipulative and self-destructive. That evening, police asked Greg to return to the station for another interview. They stripped him down to his underwear, handcuffed him, and interrogated him for hours. He voluntarily provided strands of hair for testing and answered their questions, but police were still suspicious. Eventually, they gave him a white paper suit and boots without laces. Five hours after it began, his lawyer arrived at the station and told police his client was exercising his right to remain silent. Police then marched Greg outside and up a hill to the police lockup. He was still dressed in the paper suit. A snowstorm had blown in. It was bitterly cold with freezing temperatures and the snow was up to his waist. As he trudged through the snow in the boots with no laces, he fell face down. Police laughed and mockingly called him a ghostbuster. Catherine's autopsy determined that she had died of a heart attack brought on by blood loss from the knife wounds. In the following days, over 24 people gave statements. Many said Catherine had told them that Greg had threatened her and assaulted her. But no one had ever witnessed these threats or assaults. Greg had never been anything but kind to others. Police interviewed Brian at his parents' house, and he mentioned the song that their friends had recorded just for fun, the parody that mentioned killing your parents. Police used this in Catherine's lawyer and psychiatrist statements to determine Greg killed his mother. They also used the letter he'd written to the court when his mother had filed for a peace bond, saying that it showed he had intense hatred for his mother. Police theorized that after Greg had returned home that night to let his dog out, that he took a serrated steak knife and walked a mile to his mother's house, let himself in with his key, and stabbed her to death. Police were not interested in seeking out any other possible suspects. Greg's lawyer fought for bail, and although the prosecution vigorously opposed it, he was granted bail. The Crown did not make things easy for Greg's defense team. In a highly unusual move, they permitted access to the witness statements and documents, but would not allow them to be photocopied. Instead, they allowed them to be retyped. That took Greg's legal team 61 hours. In September 1993, Greg's trial began in St. John before a judge and a jury. There was no direct evidence linking Greg to his mother's murder, but the judge allowed many of the hearsay statements and the song with lyrics about killing parents. Greg responded by saying that he had never been violent to his mother and that she truly wasn't in fear of him. On February 15, 1994, 
Greg was found guilty of second-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison with no parole for 15 years. Later, as he laid on the bottom bunk in his cell and gazed upward, he spotted writing on the underside of the top bunk and wondered, is this what he would be looking at for the rest of his life? Greg appealed his conviction. Over 300 townspeople signed his statement welcoming his return and stated that they were not concerned for their safety. And 31 friends and relatives signed affidavits in support of his release. After three months in jail, Greg was released. When his appeal was heard two years later, based on the errors made by the trial judge, his conviction was quashed and a new trial was ordered. But being out was a double-edged sword for Greg. He was relieved to be out, but the fear of being hauled back to prison was always there. He had to sign in regularly at the police station, and when he did, he faced snide comments. The police followed and harassed him and Tina's family. He opened a gym, but police parked outside and shone their flashing lights into it when he had customers, and he was forced to close it down. In 1997, DNA testing techniques had greatly improved, and evidence found in Catherine's bathroom was sent for testing, including a towel and soap wrapper with blood on them, fingernail scrapings, and a strand of hair. Months later, when the test results came back, the DNA did not belong to Greg. The murder charges were stayed, and after four years in prison, for a crime he did not commit, he was freed. The Newfoundland government publicly apologized to Greg, saying that the prosecution of this case are now fully satisfied that Mr. Parsons did not have any involvement in the killing of his mother. Police started a second investigation. It was determined that the DNA on that hair belonged to Greg's friend, Brian Doyle. Police tracked him to Ontario and used an undercover police sting to trap him. Undercover officers posed as organized crime and got Brian to work for them. Then one of the officers mentioned he wanted his wife killed, and Brian offered to do it. The officer said he'd need to know more about him first. That's when Brian confessed to killing Catherine. Twelve years after he murdered his childhood friend's mother, he was charged with first-degree murder. The charge was later reduced to second-degree murder, and in November 1992, Brian pled guilty and was sentenced to life in prison with no chance of parole for 18 years. A judicial review was ordered into Greg's wrongful conviction, the inquiry detailed how poor police work led to him being wrongly convicted. Greg was awarded $650,000 for the time he spent incarcerated, plus $200,000 to pay for his legal bills. He married Tina and became a firefighter, and to this day suffers from post-traumatic stress disorder. In 2015, Brian was moved to the Oceanfront William Head Institution just outside of Victoria in British Columbia. 
and in 2018, he was granted temporary absences so that he could attend Alcoholics Anonymous meetings in the community. Gary, who came to British Columbia for the hearing, told CBC News, I'm disappointed, but it's nothing to the disappointment to know that he's in this facility. It's a country club. There's one fence. They've got a beach. They've got tennis courts. He slaughtered my mom, and he framed me for slaughtering my mom. And then he put a hit on my family. When I started researching this story, I had no idea that a story from across the country would have a connection so close to home. Greg has a valid point about the William Head Institution. In 2019, two violent inmates escaped and murdered a local resident. Two days later, they were caught nearby when an off-duty cop walking his dog spotted them. But that's another episode. In April 2020, Ryan was granted day parole, but a year later violated his conditions and was returned to prison. Greg still believes Brian is capable of committing additional crimes. Thanks for listening to Murder in 20 with less talk and more true crime. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday for the episode of Christian Rossum and Greg DeVille. Both from prominent families, they had successful careers and the perfect marriage. That is, until she had an affair and he turned up dead. One extra needle mark and a surprise lab test led to his murder. If you're dying to hear more, past episodes of Murder in 20 are available for free at murderin20.com and on all major podcast platforms. We love what we do and are dying to continue. If you enjoy listening to Murder in 20 every week, We'd be eternally grateful for your support by visiting Murder in 20 at Patreon, PayPal, or Murderin20.com. We'd like to acknowledge Purple Planet for use of their music, sound effects and fasting studios and quick sounds, and our many editorial sources who are listed on our website. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Stay safe, sleep with the lights on, and don't play with strangers.